Hi, I'm Lucy von Sturmer, founder of impact-driven thought leadership agency, The Humble Brag, and co-initiator of grassroots activist movement, Creatives for Climate. On this podcast, I'll be learning from pioneers, mavericks, and creative disruptors, all using their power, platform, and influence to build a better world. Women challenge the status quo because we are never it. You're a real leader by simply bringing humanity back to business. Do you want to be a leader that you look back in time and say that you were on the wrong side of the argument when the world was crying out for a solution? This is a positive disturbance. Hey everybody and welcome back to a positive disturbance. Today I'm speaking to Kafui Awanor, who is somebody that is creating a bit of a disturbance to create positive impact. She is a woman who has found her voice. She's a black woman. She's a very inspiring person and leader, and she is on a mission to decolonize the wellness industry. I think that her mission, her voice, her views are very timely and relevant, and I'm very excited about sharing her story with you. I'm going to keep my introduction short this morning because her words are more powerful than mine. Um, And I will invite you at the end of this podcast, if uh, you had any thoughts on it, to share your review on Spotify. So let's jump into the conversation. So Kafui, I'm very excited to have you on the call this morning, and you're someone that um, I've come across through our courses, positioning people changing the world, and your mission is to decolonize the wellness industry, which obviously struck me as something very um, ambitious and important. So I wanted to hear a bit more from you about this mission that you're on and, and how it started. Um, thank you, firstly, for having me on the podcast. This is really exciting. Um, so it started in a, not in a conscious way. It started really with um, me growing up in Amsterdam and at some point in my early 20s discovering yoga and discovering Bikram yoga and using it more as a a physical practice um, than anything more than the spiritual practice or the the eight limbs of yoga. I was not familiar with those at all. Um, And then through that practice and living in Amsterdam, I just got more and more aware of the the wellness space that I was navigating through and that even in Amsterdam there were not a lot of people of color which seemed um, strange to me because Amsterdam is very diverse Um, but yeah I didn't find that back in my yoga practice and then I moved to Cape Town in 2010 and then I literally became the only person of color in the yoga studios that I would visit and not just the only person of color, but um, also be treated and be kind of not exactly welcomed, which was a, is a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, and again, in a country of 92% brown and black people, um, being consistently the first four, almost five years, I was almost always the only black person and the only person of color in general when I would practice. Um, so that became something obviously that I was very aware of and that I was very uncomfortable with, but I'm also the type of person who doesn't let that stop me. So I would continue to go and I would then start asking questions, um, at the studios that I became a regular at, 
um, I would try to have conversations about cultural appropriation, about, yeah, the demographic and what that looked like. And at some point um, in 2015, I did my teacher training, my yoga teacher training. And again, was out of, I think, 22 people, the only black person. And there were two other people of color who did not live in South Africa. So, um, yeah, I think that journey... The mission found you in a way. Yes. It was unavoidable to not ask questions and to not look around and see something wrong. And then also feel like, because I do hold a a place of privilege, even though I'm African, but I'm not South African... Um, and I grew up in quite a privileged way. Yeah. My, my upbringing also allowed me to um, ask questions that maybe South Africans of color might not be able to ask or might not be ready to ask. Um, I was reading a book by Rini Ido Lodge, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People Are About Race. Yeah. And she speaks <laughs> about that. Um, specifically how she has learned the language and the tools and the places in the forum to be able to have these conversations um, so that it's palatable and so that the recipient can can receive or white people can receive that information and she's become somewhat of a translator so I guess maybe that's what you're speaking to is like bridging both worlds and and being able to have that voice. Yes and I and also I grew up with a white Dutch red-headed mom um, while being very much grounded in my African, specifically Ghanaian um, heritage. So I am very much a multicultural person and multi-racial almost person because of the way I grew up and how I grew up in Amsterdam. So yeah, I think for me, I've never not, um, I've never filtered myself and I've never not um, being comfortable asking these questions or having these conversations. And um, what I noticed is that a lot of people in South Africa, a lot of people of color um, just kind of shied away from these conversations because we're supposed to be the rainbow nation here, but in practice and in reality, that's of course not the case. Um, so yeah, I took it upon myself to to just fully be that person. And so- To, to own f- that. Yes, to own it. Um, there are so many reasons why I find you interesting, um, but one of them is possibly also really just about the wellness industry in general, in the sense that this is a booming market because more and more people are disconnected from their bodies. Um, and what you were talking about in terms of cultural appropriation, I mean, I'm a foreigner here living in the Netherlands and I've never seen so many Thai, Buddha decorations everywhere. You know, like it, it's, it's literally everywhere you go, you're like, is this Bali? <laughs> yeah yeah but, um, and people don't talk about it people no, don't, it, 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 don't even think about it exactly but um I mean that's just the lens with which I come from coming from and as being an outsider here but in New Zealand because we live with because we're so few people and we live so you know uh, abundantly in nature I'd never heard of terms like forest bathing and um all these you know in New Zealand it's go for a walk and here it's like everything's packaged and commodified and you can really purchase your wellness and there's a festival for there's yoga festivals there's happiness Mm -hmm. festivals there's sunshine Mm -hmm. festivals so I'm curious about your particular perspective in terms of bringing in you know ancient perspectives and knowledge in terms of human spirituality and and how you see this whole shift in, in your role within it 
Well, I think for me personally, so I grew up a Christian in Ghana, but then moved to Holland when I was seven and have also always questioned Christianity, even in Ghana. And then when we moved to Holland, I, at some point, I think I was like 11 or 12, decided that I was not buying into Christianity and I was no longer going to go to church with my mother. Um, and then kind of started digging around and reading and exploring myself. Um, and also I come from a background that's Christian, but I also come from a family where my grandmother was a practitioner of traditional African spirituality. Um, and so I have all of that in me and all of that as part of my, my heritage and my background. And yeah, I started questioning when I came in contact with yoga, I started questioning why it was seemingly acceptable for the West to take this Eastern practice in, in South Africa on this continent to take this Eastern practice, but why even in South Africa, the African spirituality was seen and is still often seen as something that's problematic or satanic or all these negative connotations. And so for me, the reason why this has now become really a mission is because I think and I feel that we need to reconnect with our own practices. And when we reconnect and how I've reconnected with is with it is actually through yoga, finding my African spiritual practices and deepening those and combining it with all the different things, all the different practices, all the different um, modalities and bringing that in instead of following this idea that um, the West has decided that the Eastern practices are acceptable and palatable. And so it's almost like a recolonizing of bringing in something that is a beautiful thing, but is also not exactly brought to us by the West in its purest form, right? It's, it's as you said, commodified and repackaged into something that, again, the West deems palatable versus the real foundation of it. I mean, yoga for so many people is a spiritual practice. It's not just exercise, right? And I think that nowadays, so many of us lack a place of community. And I think that what I've noticed living here in Amsterdam is that sports centers in general become these places where people gather and find their place. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's really interesting the growth of of yoga and all these tools and and the mainstreaming of it. I mean, obviously, Mr. Bikram was a was a was an American capitalist that made a million dollars off off the practice. So let's not get into that. But um, I'd love to know, like, what does your practice look like, and what way is it different? If you're willing to share. Um, so my practice right now and in the past few months has been very complicated for me because I'm literally actively even doing courses that are called decolonizing yoga. Wow. So, are they courses? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I literally stopped, I stopped teaching. I stopped practicing 
because I wanted to understand which part of it, because also my teacher training was done by a very, very knowledgeable person, but a actually Australian living in South Africa has, I think, over 25 years of experience, but also a white male who, okay. for example, when I mentioned not being able to do certain postures because I have breasts and they would get in the way that wouldn't be addressed in the teacher training. So it's, there were so many different layers of so many different things that I just thought, okay, I need to sit with this and I need to understand which part of it is valuable and which part of it is just is because I've been taught this by somebody who is not really grounded in maybe the foundation of this continent's spirituality. So my practice right now consists of a lot of meditation, more so than a physical practice. When I practice physically, the movements, the postures might not be the perfect vinyasa-based yoga practices or postures. It is very much focused on the breath, it's very, very slow. It's holding it and going into a meditative state. Um, my practice space is a space where I have an altar that is a space that is dedicated to bringing in my ancestors. And so it, it really becomes, yeah, it becomes more of an indigenous and more calling in all these different modalities before I just do a 30 minute workout, which is what often the yoga practice, especially the way it's packaged in South Africa looks like yeah. and feels like. I mean, I've done yoga once to like Britney Spears playing in the background. So <laughs> it's very, yeah, very cool. Yeah, and I sometimes teach yoga to D'Angelo, yeah. you know, but, but the thing is, is that even then, it's very intentional because I want, I mean, I, I have the, the, I started the, the so far only black owned yoga studio in Cape Town. And so most of the students are people of color. And so I want them to understand that this is something that we can make our own. Yeah. So even when I choose the music, it's very intentional. We've done yoga to Ella Fitzgerald. We've done yoga wow. to, yeah. So it's, it's very- I want to come and do your yoga practice. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm actually getting more relaxed um, as you speak to me about your meditation practice and- Yeah, yeah. It's, it, so it, it, yeah, the way I'm offering it now and the way I'm practicing it and the way I set the tone and the space is very, very intentional. When we do a full moon practice, it is- to African drumming. It is really holding the postures. It's really embodying whatever is going on with you in that moment and not just going through the motions so that you feel like you've, you know, tightened your buns at the end of it. That's not, yeah, to me, that's not what this is. And it doesn't mean that there can't be different interpretations and different ways of people offering it but i i do see it as something that that can offer an entry to healing for specifically people of color in this country it's interesting you spoke about this course being run this decolonizing yoga course being run by um a white man 
And no, no, no. So that was my teacher training that was with, oh, okay. was run by a white man. No, no, this is very much by a a um Indian indigenous Okay. Person. Yes. Indian um, from India, not <laughs> That sounds slightly more appropriate. Got it. Yes. No, no, I would never. I could never, frankly. I cannot, yeah. I'm I'm also becoming and I have become very intentional about basically where I put my attention, where I put my money and where mm. I I train now and where I unlearn and where I, I relearn. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know your experience because from my perspective, being a, a woman in general, but I can only imagine a, 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 a black woman, owning your own voice and having a voice is quite disruptive in general, right? People, you kind of have your place and then there are, then there are leaders. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you can yeah. rise so far up and then there are leaders. So could you yeah. talk to me a little bit about your own journey of finding your voice and learning how to hold your space? Oof. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've always been outspoken. I've always been, uh, interestingly, I'm, I'm owning more being confrontational and not having that be a bad thing. Um, in South Africa, I feel like people in general are not like that. And, and certainly women are, are not really taught to be that. Um, but a few years ago, about three, four, three years ago, I literally took on the yoga studio that I was working at at the time, teaching and working at reception, because a, a colleague made a racist comment towards me. And instead of the owner um, then addressing the situation appropriately, um, they decided to threaten me. <laughs> and... I then took them to labor court and took the, the person who made the comment to the equality court. And um, I, I had to, frankly, it had been years. At that point, it had been almost eight years of me being a part of the student base there and a few years of me teaching and, and working there um, and trying to have these conversations gently, trying to change the system from the inside out. Yeah. That was what I was convinced I was doing. And at some point I think I just had enough. And I also had enough of other people coming to me with stories that were similar to mine. And I just decided that that was the time to just, yeah, stop hiding and start shouting and start burning it down if necessary and start being very deliberately vocal and unapologetic and no longer um yes allowing other people to silence any of our voices really that's such a for me at least that's a very difficult energy to hold to to accept that you're going to be people are going to not like everything that you do and say. So yeah. you obviously had a, 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 an amount of life experience and, and, and authority in, within yourself to say, okay, I can be this person now. Um, I don't, I don't even think that <laughs> at the time I did, I think now I do, but right. at the time I think really, I mean, I, I had panic attacks. I was paralyzed by the fear of, 
literally walking down the street, I would avoid a certain street because the yoga studio was on that street yeah. for about a year. I couldn't step onto my yoga mat. So I don't think that at the time I even understood fully what I was doing, but I also believed that it was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And that somehow I believe that spiritually my ancestors backed me and held me and pushed me forward and decided that it was time, even when I maybe wasn't ready. Um, wow. So, yeah. And I think this is what people forget sometimes is that the change makers, the people making change, it's not like you're necessarily born ready to go out and challenge everything. It's this messy, painful, sensitive process of saying, hey, I'm going to challenge this because yeah. I have enough life experience and because I know I'm not doing it for myself only. Exactly. And I think that was the thing. Once I spoke up, I literally had a, over a hundred people send me messages on different platforms in different ways, telling me this was my experience and I never spoke up, but I'm so happy you're speaking up or yeah, I went through this and I reported it and then nothing happened and so it turned into this thing where I, I knew that there would be people who would hear me and encourage me and stand with me, but I didn't realize really fully what I was doing until I'd already done it. And that's and the power yeah, of calling, right? Yeah. And it's, it's incredibly messy. And even to this day, I'm like, what, how, I yeah, I'm like, you what, ended up on the what BBC, Al Jazeera. I mean, it's no. not just your community. It's the whole world that was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, people took notice and sat up and went, okay, it's, I guess it's time. And even now, a few years later, it's really interesting because I think this new wave of Black Lives Matter push and movement has also made these people in the wellness spaces sit up and take attention and pay attention because they're now a few years later coming to me and going hi um can we talk about this can we move out of these spaces that we've been in and blind to and how can we actively now be part of that change and it's ironic because for years i was trying to do that and move that along gently and change it from the inside. Mm -hmm. And now I think they're also understanding that it, it affects their bottom line if they don't, if they don't jump on board of this. Definitely. Definitely. So what does the wellness industry look like when it's decolonized? What does it look like when your work is done? My work will never be done. <laughs> um, which is a, a, a good thing. Um, but what changes what, can we hope to see, I guess, you know, and, yeah. and, and how can we support people that are getting it right? Because there's mm -hmm. so much money. It's such a huge industry to be made from people's stress and suffering and yeah. to be selling um, practices that I guess, you know, are, are ancient human wisdom. Um, yeah. So yeah. how Frankly, can we, we kind of navigate the space? Cause somebody living here in Amsterdam it's there's a coach and and a, 
a way to buy everything you need in your human experience. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of cultural appropriation, as you say. Yeah. So how could we support this movement? Um, so firstly, I think the, what it would look like, let's start with South Africa. Um, what it would look like here is actually the other way around of what it looks like now. So the spaces would be run by brown and black people because they're the ones who hold the wisdom to these ancient practices, actually. And so for me, the, the utopia version of a wellness space is a space that doesn't just offer yoga, but also often offers plant medicine offered by black people, also offers um, books to read um, um, on wellness, um, also offers um, coaching, but also offers sangomas and like wellness centers that have all of that knowledge in one place. So that when you are feeling unwell or you understand that you need help, it is not just a Western psychiatrist or psychologist that you go to. You come to a center and through different people and different modalities, you figure out what it is that you actually need. It might be yoga, but it might also be work with a sangoma. It might also be work with a voodoo priestess. It might also be, you know, there's so many, it might be Reiki. It might be so many different things. Um, and I want that to be normalized. I want us as humans in general on this planet to remember and regain and restore this knowledge that we have suppressed and that we've now paved over with a Western understanding of what wellness even looks like or supposed to feel like. It really is actually a reprogramming and a remembering. I don't feel like we need to build something new. I feel like we need to strip away the things that we've we've plastered over this wound, this collective wound. I think what you're doing is really powerful and part of this whole new economy shift where people um, on an individual level have so much to to transform and to engage with and 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 to decolonize. So that's really, really powerful. Um, yeah, no, go. Um, and I think the way to support that is to be very intentional and very conscious as to where you put your money. Okay. Because this is a movement that is in need of that type of support. So if anywhere you go, you enter spaces and they're predominantly white then yeah ask them why the spaces are predominantly white ask them what they're doing to change that ask them about cultural appropriation when you see it um engage in these conversations um contact these few and far between black owned or brown owned spaces and ask them what you can do to help them grow to contribute maybe it's not not financially, but in other ways. I'm sure that there are so many people wanting to offer these spaces and maybe not having 
the knowledge that you might have to help, to support, have these types of conversations with people. Don't just default to either a Christian or a Western or an Eastern way of looking at wellness. I have nothing more to add, Kafumi. <laughs> is there is there is there anything that you would like to um, leave people with? Um, this is a a an opportunity for all of us to. There's a there's a word in Ghana. Um, in one of our traditional, in one of our languages called Sankofa. And it means, there's a symbol of it and it's a bird that has its feet pointed forward, but its beak is pointed back and it's holding a nut in its beak. And so that's the symbol of the word Sankofa. And it means looking to the past to bring into the future. And that's exactly what this is and what this needs to be. We cannot move into the future without our foundation and our foundation is in our past. That's what we stand on. So we need to look into that past and we need to bring those practices, whether it's spiritual, whether it's traditional, whatever it is, um, we can't just move into the future without bringing that past into it. We need to move into the 21st century and we've so far just kind of kept running, but we haven't brought our foundation with us. I'm not sure about you, but I'm thinking more and more that whilst we're living in a terrifying and divisive time, it's also an exciting time because new world orders are rising up, new types of leaders are rising up. Uh, I wouldn't say new knowledge, but knowledge that's always been there and wisdom that's always been there is now rising up. Um, and leaders like Kafui are um, paving the way and uh, really challenging the status quo, um, creating a bit of a disturbance to create positive impact. And I'm very inspired by her. So thanks for listening to this. If you got this far, you are a champion. And I look forward to sharing a new story of a bold and brave leader raising their voice to drive change in our next episode. And if you're somebody with a story to tell, a diverse voice or a viewpoint, remember that we also offer courses for individuals now. Yay, that was a big milestone for us. So if you'd like to work with me in that way, um, as did Kafui, you can find that on our website.